And I'm going to read to you the second chapter of the prophet Nahum. So I'll give you some time to turn to it. But if you've got a church Bible, uh, you'll find it on page 937. Page 937. Well, last week, or the week before last, rather, we looked at chapter 1, where justice uh, was decreed, and tonight we're going to look at chapter 2, where God's justice is described. And I'm going to read to you the chapter uh, that we're going to look at before we start, and I'm going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to read the whole of the chapter, all 13 verses. An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourselves. Marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Though the destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. The shields of his soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes. On the day they are made ready, the spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches, they dart about like lightning. He summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall, the protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, the supplies endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped, hearts melt, Knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young? Where the lion and lioness went, and the cubs with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs, and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and the dens with his prey. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Well, let me pray before we have a look at that passage. Well, in the previous chapter of Nahum, we looked at God's power and we looked at God's justice through that chapter. And we know that this book is a prophecy against the Assyrian Empire, who at the time of this writing was the biggest, most powerful empire in the world. But when you get to chapter 2, we just read of this destruction of this nation. It's a chapter of blood and guts, if you like. And you may be wondering, well, where is Jesus in all of this? If you look in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, we see Jesus on the road to Emmaus sharing with those two men he met 
all the law and the prophets, all the things concerning himself. And you get to a place like Nahum the prophet and you think, well, where is Jesus in all of this destruction? Well, of course, justice is what this is about, isn't it? And Jesus died in our place. Justice was done through him. When we talk about uh, the destruction of God's enemies, of course, the biggest enemy is sin. And it was defeated ultimately through Jesus Christ. And chapter 2 goes through the story of the fall of Nineveh by the Babylonians. It's told as a narrative giving very descriptive language. But it's also a warning to the world today. Remember, it was spoken when Assyria was at its most powerful and its most strong, at a time when no one thought that this could possibly happen. And it's the same for the principalities and powers in the world today. They will be judged. Like Nineveh, they will pass away. And as we read through the story, we see three stages of what happens. We see the attack, we see the defeat, and we see the plunder But also, as we read this, we can see how God deals with those who reject him, but also what God has done for us through Jesus. Well, the first part is Nineveh is attacked in verses 1 to 6. And the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2, that resistance against God is futile. It says, an attacker advances against you, Nineveh. And then he starts to mock this most powerful of empires. He tells them, guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. The fortresses of Nineveh would have been strong. The roads would have been vast, the people powerful, embracing themselves, and their strength would be mighty. But these are all said in irony. Even if they do these things even if they make themselves as powerful as they can possibly be, they would not be saved. Verse 2 tells us that even if they obey these commands and use all their might and power to do these things, God will restore all his people to splendor. Look at verse 2. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and ruined their vines. Uh, the, the ruin will fall on Nineveh because God is mindful of his chosen people whom the Assyrians had oppressed. And if you read the book of two kings, you see this oppression all the way through. In chapter 17, we read that the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, were taken into exile because of their sin by the Assyrians. We know through two kings too that until Assyria was defeated, The southern kingdom of Judah, too, was oppressed, having to pay tribute to Assyria, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago uh, when we read a passage in Two Kings that told us that. And it's interesting to note that although Assyria was destroyed by Babylon, it's God's people who God is restoring, not the Babylonians. He was using the Babylonians as part of his unfolding plan to restore his people. And the beginning of verse 2 can be interpreted in many different ways. Some people say that the the splendor of Jacob and the splendor of Israel are two different things. 
like the political aspect or the, and the spiritual aspect? I don't know the exact answer, but there are two key points about God who will restore his people. Whatever the world throws at us, whatever principalities and powers seem strong and mighty, whoever shakes their fist at God, whoever tries to stop the spread of the gospel, all these are useless against the mighty plan and purpose of our omnipotent God, who is doing his sovereign will, who is building a glorious church that will be with him for all eternity. So the first thing is, even though the world tries to stop the spread of the gospel, God will restore his people. God is building his church. And secondly, the ultimate splendor is found in Christ. The destruction of his enemies spiritually happened when he came the first time at the cross and resurrection. But physically, this will be completed when he comes again, won't it? When we will be with him in heaven as his people and all his enemies will be destroyed. Resistance against God is futile. God will restore his people. And in verses 3 and 4, we read that part of the reason resistance is futile is because of the ferocity of these attacks. Look at verses 3 and 4. The shields of his soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. Well, the shields were red from either blood or the red-dyed leather, or they were covered in copper or something like that. The warrior's attire would make them awesome in appearance. And the chariots, well, they looked like fire as they glistened in the sun. And the spears that were made from fir trees, big, long spears that were brandished. And verse 4 describes the attack itself. The chariots are storming through the streets. I think the authorised version even uses the word broadways. So the streets are really wide and broad, and these attackers are filling the streets. There's so many of them coming to attack, rushing back and forth, almost fighting each other to kill as many Ninevites as they can kill. And in the streets and the city squares, and they are so fast, they are likened to lightning. A great, uh, awful, awesome description of these attackers. But when they attack, how does Nineveh respond? Well, in verse 5, she summons her picked troops. The king calls up the best, the best troops that he has, the, the best of the whole of the Assyrian Empire. But what happens? It says, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall and the protective shield is put in place. But then in verse 6, This is useless. The river gates are open and the palace collapses. A river uh, that had magnificent dams was built around Nineveh. And the city was under siege and the Babylonians apparently closed the gate of these dams and it made the waters rise and combined with heavy rain, the river overflowed, flooding the city. And the walls were made from sunburnt brick And the flooding rivers would have just melted these walls away. 
making the pathway clear for these soldiers to just march in and destroy the city. In fact, some uh, versions use the word dissolve instead of collapse, which might be a more accurate word. Others actually take the flooding to be figurative, as in the flood of people coming to make an end of the city. But either way, God fulfills what he said in chapter 1 and verse 8. With an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. And on the cross, where Jesus died, the flow of blood from our perfect saviour cleanses us from sin. Sin is our enemy as it stops us being in relationship with God. But when Jesus died in our place, taking what we deserve, he did so in our place for justice for us. That overwhelming flood was placed on Jesus. Resistance is futile against God, though. These Ninevites thought that they were big. They thought they were powerful, and they were but they were nothing against God. I remember when we first sent Lydia to playgroup, and before she went there, um, she wouldn't really get that sick. But when she went to playgroup, all of a sudden, she would bring home all these coughs and colds and nits and different things. And then the first time she had a bad cold, we phoned up the playgroup and said, well, should we keep her at home? And they said, well, no, there's no point in keeping your child at home because she's just going to catch it anyway. The other kids will pick up uh, stuff and bring it to her. And, and in fact, me and Paula probably never got that sick until we sent our children to playgroup. But resistance against those kind of things is futile, isn't it? It's pointless trying to avoid the coughs and colds that your children pick up in playgroup because they will reach you anyway. And the world can try and avoid God's punishment for sin. But even if they try and avoid God, the penalty catches up with them anyway just like the playgroup coughs and colds. The only way to avoid sin's penalty is to be overwhelmed by the grace of God rather than the flood of judgment. But what about sin in our lives as Christians? The Bible talks to us in John 15 about God pruning his people, taking off the worthless branches that do not bear fruit, and how often we resist this attack on the sin in our life. God often attacks sin in our life, doesn't he? Trying to get us to live lives for the glory of God. And sometimes it's painful to cast sins aside. Sometimes it's hard to take off the old man and put on the new. Sometimes we enjoy sinning a little bit too much, don't we? But resistance is also futile for us because God has a plan and a purpose in shaping us into the image of Jesus. So we ought to be letting him work in our lives rather than trying to fight against him. And I wonder for you, what sins are you resisting God working to get rid of? Well, after Nineveh's attack, we see that ultimately Nineveh is defeated. Look at verses 7 and 8. Nahum goes on to describe the defeat at the hands of the Babylonians. And this ferocious attack that we read about was only going to have one outcome. It is decreed, it says, that the city be exiled and carried away. This is a decree that there's nothing uh, they can do about. God has decreed it. 
This city will be captive and carried away. And in the authorized version, there's a word called uh, Huzab. It says, Huzab shall be led away captive. And Huzab means the established one. And is either talking about the queen, but more likely talking about the nation of, of uh, the city of Nineveh more generally. She is led away captive. And then as verse 7 goes on, uh, her female slaves are carried away too. And their sadness is described as like doves or like the voices of doves. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. And the original uh, word for, for um, cry is more than just um, being a little bit upset. It's a cry or a, a wail. They were wailing. Uh, you know, like in, in sometimes on the news, you see the funerals in the Middle East where people are wailing when the coffin is going by. It's a similar kind of thing. The mourning, the beating of the breasts in sorrow at this defeat. And the story continues in verse 8. Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Nineveh of old was like a men, uh, 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 like was old, like, was like, like a pool full of men. But now all these strong men, all these people are just draining away as if you've taken the plug out of the bath. And the commanders are calling them to stop, the, stop running away. But it says no one, no one turns back. This is complete and utter defeat. Apparently the king tried to send his sons and daughters away with the treasure to escape. But they didn't make it. No one escaped this awful destruction. And the defeat of sin is ultimately defeated at the cross. Nineveh was judged and was defeated, but the ultimate enemy, sin, was defeated at the cross and when Jesus rose again. And we read some verses from 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll read you some of them again to repeat them. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin and death are defeated by Jesus, and as his people, as his redeemed people, we take part in this glorious victory, don't we? We don't have to be judged for our sin because Jesus was judged for us. We have victory in Christ. When Winston Churchill uh, delivered his first speech as Prime Minister on the 13th of May 1940, he was faced with an awesome enemy and a threat of invasion. And these were the words that he said in the House of Commons. You ask, what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war with all our might, with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalogue of human crime. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. And five years later, that policy was fulfilled with a total victory over Hitler's forces, and the world changed forever in many ways. 
And in the same way, what is Christ's aim? It's victory. Victory at all costs. And it was the cost of his own life. He has provided total victory over sin and has changed us so completely that we are no longer children of sin, but children and heirs of God. And one of my favorite hymns um, is an old hymn, and I think it's an old American hymn, actually. And these are the words of the chorus. It says, O victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Sin is defeated. Nineveh was destroyed because of sin, and God, through Christ, has destroyed sin through, through Christ's death and resurrection. And we take part in that wonderful, awesome victory when we turn to him. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 57, it says, Thanks be to God, and shouldn't that be our attitude towards what he has done for us? Thanks be to God. Well, after Nineveh was defeated, we see that Nineveh is plundered. Look at verses 9 and 10. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, the supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped, hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Well, the Babylonian Chronicle, which wasn't, the, by the way, the local newspaper of Babylon, it was a, a history of, what they, uh, what, of their empire, uh, says that the great quantities of spoil taken away from Nineveh were beyond counting. It is said that 7,350 uh, 7, Greek talents of gold was taken. Now, one talent was about nine years' wages for a skilled labourer. And in today's money, that would be worth billions and billions of pounds. Nineveh, being the capital of the Assyrian Empire, was the storehouse of all the plunder that they had taken from all of their conquests. And it says there that the supply is endless, the wealth from all its treasures, and the, the city is left pillaged and plundered and stripped, the complete opposite of gold and silver and endless wealth. And those who remember the city are described at the end of verse 10. Their hearts melt, their knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. And when a great quantity of treasure disappears like that, that's the reaction, isn't it? I remember when we bought our first house and I had to send my deposit to the solicitor. And I tell you, my heart melted, my knees gave way, my body trembled as I was wondering whether the money had arrived or not. And this is how they reacted when all their treasure had gone. All their riches were carried away. And then they humiliate the Assyrians even more. Look at verses 11 and 12. Where now is the lions then? The place where they fed their young. Where the lion and lioness went and the cubs with nothing to fear. The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling his lairs with the kill and his dens with prey. Assyrian kings prided themselves on their ability to hunt and kill lions, and they likened their own ferocity and fearlessness to that of lions. And lions were used frequently in Assyrian decorations. In fact, the war god Nergal had a lion's body and a human head. And the lion described here 
is Assyria, the lioness, the queens and concubines, and the cubs are the princes and nobles. They were secure in their den, in their cities and their their palaces. They strangled prey, referring to the conquered nations of Syria, Phoenicia, Philistia, Israel and Judah and Egypt, who filled up the lairs and dens of Assyria. But he says, where are they? Where are they now? They're nowhere to be seen. It's been plundered. And one day, all of our earthly treasure, all of the power that we uh, think we have, all of our reputation, all of our authority, really won't count for anything. In some ways, it's plundered, isn't it? It's taken away. Remember the parable of the rich fool who wanted to build bigger barns for himself in Luke chapter 12. After he decided to use his wealth for himself and to hoard it and to save for a long and happy retirement where he could, as it says in the Bible, take life easy, eat, drink and be merry, what did God say to him? When he said, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And we cannot take any of our earthly treasure with us. We won't take any of our power or our authority with us either. Just like the Assyrians lost their their plunder, their, their gold and silver, just like they lost their power like lions, so too will we when we die. But on the other hand, look at what Christ gives us. He gives us real treasure, more more of it than any Assyrian kingdom could ever hold. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we're told this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We are richer through what we have in Christ than any earthly treasure could ever be. We can't store it up in a barn. We can't store it up in a castle or anywhere else. But it's the richest, most awesome gift that we could ever have. It's stored in heaven. And it cannot be plundered by invading armies or anything else. It's ours forever because it's secured by God himself in Christ. There is a king of Assyria uh, called King Sarandapolis, and he's a bit like our King Arthur in that he's a bit of a legend. And his story is told by a Greek historian called uh, Diodorus Siculus, a very Greek name. And it's said in the legend that he died and placed uh, at his funeral 150 golden beds and as many tables of gold on his funeral pile besides gold and silver vases, ornaments in enormous quantities, and purple and other coloured raiments on his funeral pile, as if he could use it again after he died. It's like the Egyptian kings that were buried with their tombs full of gold and all their wealth. But it can't be taken with them. It can't be used And this is what people seem to think they can do today, isn't it? They can gather as much as they can, as if they can take it with them. The accumulation of wealth seems to be 
a very, uh, the most important thing in today's society. But as Jesus said, and I think we read this morning, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Uh, my favourite missionary, uh, C.T. Studd, said these uh, words. He knew what it was like, by the way, to give up treasure. He gave up millions of pounds in his inheritance, gave it away to various mission organizations and went to serve God in China. And he said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. All your riches will be gone one day. You can't take them with you. So make sure you're using them for Jesus, where true riches lie in the heavenly places. And the final verse in verse 13 is another declaration from God to Nineveh. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. Well, Assyria, it was burnt up. Their young lions were devoured and they were silenced so much that until the 1800s, people thought often that Nineveh was a myth. But in the 1800s, archaeologists dug it up and realized it was a real place. But their voices were silenced. And there will be a time in the future when those who the Lord is against, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ as their King and Savior, will be burnt up for all eternity, and their voices will no longer be heard. But as for the believers in Christ, Christ has taken the punishment for us. The justice described here for Assyria is also due to us, but Christ took the punishment, justifying us so we can be called righteous and be with God for eternity. This is a passage of much destruction. And when you really read it and understand it, it is awful, isn't it? It's awful what happens to those who reject God. But it's awful, but it's also just. Because God is a holy God who cannot abide sin. But as we read at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God that he sent Jesus. Thanks be to God that he sent Jesus. Our final song that we're going to sing reminds us of this. It says, I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree.